What's up, folks? Welcome to The 180 with Eric Lockley. I'm your host, Eric Lockley. There are moments in life that define us, that lead us to crossroads where we have to choose one path or another. Join me as we dive into our guest, Turning Points. Let's laugh, heal, and be inspired together as we pull back the curtain on how our guests made The 180. Sometimes life gets hard when you're on your journey. Don't stop, keep going, you can turn it around. The 180, yes, it's a big change. The 180, your life will be the same. The 180, you can do it. Say yes to your beautiful future. The 180, yeah. Okay, everybody. I am really honored to have my guest, Inosanto Nagara, here. What's up, Inosanto? Meet you. The honor is all mine. Thanks for having me. You have done a lot of amazing things in life, and I'm excited to share with people your skill set, your humanity, your your activism, just the amount of things that you've done. So I'll, I'll do a brief intro to talk a little bit about it, and then we'll continue to learn more throughout this episode. So Inosanto Nagara is a children's author, activist, and graphic designer. He's the creator behind the best-selling children's book, A is for Activist, among authoring and illustrating other children's books that use themes of activism and action to educate and enlighten. In 2002, he founded and launched the Design Action Collective, a worker-owned cooperative design studio in Oakland, California. Since then, Design Action has grown and become a leading social justice design studio that provides graphic design, web development, and visual communication services. Inosanto's work is grounded in the philosophy, do not design in a vacuum. Inosanto continues to create and collaborate with other organizations and causes that he cares about. And his most recent children's book, Oh, The Things We're For, is available now. So please help me to welcome Mr. Inosanto Nagara. Everybody. <laughs> Thanks for having me. How are you today? Good, sir. Morning here in Oakland, but oh yes, that is that is true. <laughs> I'm on the East Coast, you're on the West Coast, so I've had like a full three hours of awakeness. Still drinking coffee, so. understandable. I've and I've got my tea, but that's typical. I always have tea for these conversations. Here at the 180, we love to play games. It's game time on the 180. The name of the game is Mr. Miyagi or Mahatma Gandhi. A little birdie, aka some research told me that you teach martial arts at a collectively run dojo is is that is that true that's true yeah what uh what martial arts specifically danzanru jiu-jitsu and uh, uh yoshinkan style aikido wow how, how long have you done that oh uh i don't know like 12 years or something i i mean that's as long as i've been training i've uh, haven't been teaching the whole time but i started um Sugetsukan dojo is a worker own and um, collectively run dojo in oakland that has been around for quite a while and i started there yeah probably about 12 years ago and fell in love with martial arts and next thing i know i'm part of the teaching collective as well <laughs> wow that's amazing i love i've loved martial arts my whole life oh, yeah? yeah i uh capoeira I, oh, yeah. i've done some <laughs> <laughs> and felt really good about it. I love that's my favorite martial arts capoeira I just love like the dance element that's oh, beautiful yeah and I did in college a little bit of Aikido uh -huh. I was pretty good at it I mean that momentum you know it's 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 very specific but it's great yeah in some ways all these martial arts end up you know they all converge at some point so it's you know whatever or methodology used to learn it and and to train it it all you know it, it all they all connect 
So with this in mind, the game is inspired by one of my favorite pop culture martial arts references, which is the Karate Kid, mm -hmm. as well as one of the world's most influential leaders and activists. Let's play Mr. Miyagi or Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> so I've got quotes and you've just got to tell me whether Mr. Miyagi said it or Mahatma Gandhi <laughs> said it. This is going to be hard. I mean, <laughs> I, it may be. I know. I was like, this might be a hard game because they, they, you know, obviously are both very deep. They're all about that. Yeah. Okay. So number one, never put passion in front of principle. Even if you win, you lose. Mr. Miyagi. Correct. Yes. It was Mr. Miyagi <laughs> who said that. All right. Next up. It's actually kind of hard to try to like resist saying this as the character. Anyway, right. <laughs> I'm giving that away. Okay. Where there is love, there is life. So this is one of the trick ones. It's supposed to sound like Gandhi, but it's actually Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> That's my guess. Your guess is Mr. Miyagi? Ah. <laughs> it was Gandhi. Sounds like Gandhi. <laughs> yes. But you were like, you, you recognized that it was a close one. Okay. Next one. It's okay to lose to opponent. It's never okay to lose to fear. Mr. Miyagi. Yeah. That's a martial arts type quote. <laughs> Correct. Mr. Miyagi said that to Danielson. All right, next up. The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. Mr. Miyagi. Oh, no! Ah. <laughs> These are actually hard. I forget how much how much Gandhi was a martial arts teacher. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, because it's like... When you hear the weak, you're thinking, okay, it's an opponent type of the ad. So, wow. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, this is all fun and silly. No, no, I got to think about these things. I'm starting to lose. <laughs> I'm 50-50, right? <laughs> you're 50-50 now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. An eye for an eye only ends up making Old the whole world, world blind. blind. That would be Gandhi. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> you got that one right. You got that one right. In a gentle way, you can shake the world. This is one where now I want to say it. Should be Gandhi, but it's probably Mr. Miyagi, but then maybe it is Gandhi after all. I'm going to go for Mama Gandhi. Okay. Ah, correct, correct, correct. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. You were close. I was like, I want you to get it right. I want you to get it right. That was another quote from Gandhi. Ambition without knowledge is like a boat on dry land. Mr. Miyagi. That was a celebratory oh, horn, okay. not an incorrect horn. So that was correct. So... You've got the majority correct. I, I've got one more. Right. So this is the last one. For man with no forgiveness in heart, life is a worse punishment than death. Mahatma Gandhi. That was Mr. Ah. Miyagi, which I thought yeah, I was yeah. worried that I gave it away. No, no. But that was wrong. But you still got most of them right. So we're going to give you a round of applause. That's very important to me, as you can tell. <laughs> Do I get your voice on my answering machine? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. You're, what you've won is my voice on your answer. <laughs> no, we'll send you the 180 mug that has my face on it. So, <laughs> so my voice might not be right. You can have the coffee yeah. with my face on it. Thanks so much for playing. Hopefully uh, the listeners at home had a good time playing along with Mr. Miyagi or Mahatma Gandhi. All right. So now I'm going to ask you some questions to learn uh, just a, a bit more about you. What is one important skill that you think everyone should have? This is where it gets hard for me because, I, you know, especially as a children's book author, I get asked a lot of questions about sort of like, what does it, should everybody do? And that's kind of, and I, uh -huh. I, I really resist being that prescriptive about everybody must do, you know, a whole mm -hmm. key 
part of my sort of theory of change is that it takes all kinds of different ways that people approach things and certainly far be it from me to know the one <laughs> best way to do things yeah but if i have to answer the question i guess i would say something along the lines of learning how to learn mm. as a skill that i talk about with my kid a lot like it's less to me about whether or not they are really good at something or you know but the the knowing how to learn something if you choose to um and that's you know that encompasses things like listening and and researching and all that kind of stuff but yeah learning how to learn that's enlightening in the sense of i, I don't think we are always taught to learn how to learn you know what i mean especially in an educational system that values testing so much to the extent that's like well memorize what you have to do for the test or you know understand how to do this problem and once it's done you're done with it yeah. but it's like learning how to learn is such an important skill yeah and it's different for different people obviously so part of that is identifying what you need to learn stuff and i see that in martial arts a lot you know like like what i need in order to learn mm. certain types of techniques you know there's certain type there's drilling that works for me um that you know when i teach other people it may i say just do this and you'll you know like doesn't always play out that way so for them it might be a different they have a different way of learning how to learn that works better for them yes it's so important i think about like with my i have a theater company harlem-based theater company mm. and our leadership team we're non-hierarchical so we all collaborate to like make decisions and over the years we've learned okay this is how David communicates. This is how Deidre communicates, this, you know, and it's respecting that I'm probably going right. to write a long email and right. somebody else is probably going to say a long, have a long rant at the meeting and somebody else is going to type out a text message. So it's, yeah, learning styles and being able to respect and appreciate all different learning styles and communication styles are, are really important. Yeah, yeah. Is there an annoying habit that you can admit to? <laughs> <laughs> And this is hard. Yeah, I'm sure my partner would have a long list <laughs> that we could share. I guess, I mean, what I get the most is that, you know, sort of a habit of trying to come up with solutions, solve problems when I hear a problem. Okay. You know, it's like I, I, I get anxious yeah. hearing stuff and then I want to, I want it is my way of wanting to make it go away yeah so i'm not saying that i'm good at problem solving i'm just saying that i you know my instinct is to try to resolve uh -huh. it quickly and um one of you know and this is sort of a classic sort of gender-based thing too the idea uh -huh. that you know, i'm always <laughs> and instead of just being able to to you know listen, listen and the, be empathetic yeah. and end up you know it's very hard to not want to try to make the problem go away <laughs> uh-huh yeah yeah you're solution oriented which can be really really helpful but yeah and de depending on different relationships in your yeah. life it can be like i just wanted you to say it'll be okay yeah. <laughs> or i just wanted you to hear it exactly okay okay that's a that's a very humble thing to be able to admit to and certainly i think uh a common problem for people who care a lot. You know what I mean? It's, it comes from caring and wanting to help and fix things. I mean, I certainly think it comes from the best intentions possible. But <laughs> <laughs> right, but if somebody can receive it like, I just, I didn't, that's not what I asked for. Next, if you could have any famous artist, dead or alive, create a work of art just for you, who would you commission? And so this could be, you know, fine art, it could be a painting, or it could be a singer, or it could be a filmmaker, but who's somebody that you would say, I want you to create a piece of art just for me? Oh, 
Um, uh, Linda Manuel Miranda. <laughs> nice. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Not, not to be, you know, overly modest about it. <laughs> so, right. So, would you want Lynn Manuel Miranda to write a musical for you about sure. you? I mean, like if, well, yeah, I've, I've just been, been super into what he did with the Hamilton thing. And so it's, yeah, you know, yeah. there's just ways as a storyteller, as a, you know, I write children's books and, you know, the, the way that, you know, you weaved in so many kind of archetypical storylines and brought it, made it yeah. contemporary and made it, you know, it was just so clever. So I just, I'm totally in love with that right now. So that's, that's the first name that comes to mind. I love that. Well, Lynn, if you're listening, you know, you never know who's listening. So Lynn, if you're listening, <laughs> Inosanto wants a musical. Inosanto, the musical. Um, <laughs> after this interview is over, I might end up giving you an improvised musical uh, as I learn more about you. We'll see. We'll see. Or maybe, maybe that doesn't have to be about me. Can you do it about one of my books? Maybe. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Actually, this, uh, you know, this might happen because there's some kid actors. Yeah. <laughs> right. I do, I do theater, I do musical improv, so, you know, yeah. there might be a future for this, Inosanto, yeah. I'm in. Okay, great. <laughs> so let's delve into, considering that you've written most often for children, can you tell us about, about your childhood? My whole childhood? <laughs> I, I know, right? Tell us about your childhood, when you came out of the womb. But right. uh, yes, yeah, just some highlights, but uh, yeah, just a bit about how you grew up and maybe what may have inspired you to start writing children's books. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I was not somebody who thought I was going to become a children's book author. I didn't. That's um, I childhood. I, I was born and raised in Jakarta, Indonesia. I was very different kind of a child than than the grown up that I am. As <laughs> basically uh, your standard Indonesian kid. My father was a famous. Um, uh, director, uh, theater person, theater director, and, and oh, wow. um, so I, I grew up on the backstage of his theater productions um, in the seventies. And so, mm. when I was younger, I was not shy. Um, I was in a lot of his plays, and you know, we traveled through the country <laughs> doing these political plays. Wow! And I went to uh, public school in Indonesia. My friends were, you know. It was a school that was um, it was a it was called a lab school. It was a teaching school for university, a teaching university students, and so we got some of the best, you know, more most innovative young teachers in the country. Um, mm. So we ended up with a a very accomplished kind of student body. Um, one of my best friends, you know, one ended up being a one of Indonesia's best known filmmakers and one of, you know, mm. and others became like, everybody's kind of like a lot of, a lot of the kids out of this high school ended up going places um, in Indonesia. And one thing I, I want to mention, it feels like just from hearing what you've shared thus far, trying new things was a big part of your childhood. I mean, just the idea of you traveling with your father and doing theater and then also being in this school where teachers are coming and kind of innovating and then hearing what, some of your uh, classmates ended up doing and knowing what you've done, uh, would you say that trying new things or innovation was a big part of childhood to a certain extent? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that they were testing out in my school was this module system that allowed kids to um, move at their own pace around um, mm. you know, the educational stuff. And 
um, it, it ended up not being adopted in Indonesia um, nationally, but uh, I think the idea that, you know, we all kind of need to find our own path, you know, was embedded in, yeah. in that system. And, and that was relatively positive. Um, and I think the idea of feeling that kind of anything is possible thing is, you know, it was one of the things that I was lucky to have because growing up with, you know, my father, he was a high school graduate, but he was, you know, well-known in Indonesia as a poet playwright and mm -hmm. later became a film star, you know? So the idea that you don't have to be from a famous family or you don't have to have a lot of money or you don't have to have yeah. high degrees. My mother is from the United States. She's a linguist and ended up in Indonesia <laughs> in the seventies. She's actually a, um, one of my little anecdotes is that we did know Obama when he was a kid, because this is such a small world what? in Indonesia because his mom uh -huh. was also in Indonesia and his, uh, younger half sister was my best friend growing up. So the wow. two half Indonesian kids growing up in, in Jakarta. <laughs> um, wow. Well, Obama, if you're listening, you never know who's listening. <laughs> you know, let's just. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was known as very, very Sutoro back then. <laughs> oh, very Sutoro. But, um, wow. So, you know, the idea that anything is possible, uh, mm -hmm. anything, but you know, the idea that, uh, there's not, you're not sort of like tracked into this is what you're going to be, I think yeah. was, was somewhat embedded into that model. Wow. And in what ways, if any, do you think that you are writing to yourself at age six, 10, 13? Do you feel that at all or? Honestly, probably not. Yeah. You know, I have the blessing and curse of having a bad memory. So like <laughs> I, you know, and I'm 50 now. And so I feel like that's when I said earlier, I was a very different person. You know, I feel like I've gone through different phases of being mm -hmm. very different people. Um, it informs who I am now, but, um, you know, I think when I got into children's book writing, I was writing for my kid. Um, and he's, right. he's growing up here in the United States um, in a very different context. Um, yeah. And so I, yeah, so, so I, I tend to be, you know, my, my art, my target audience, um, here in the uh, is is kids here growing up in this time and place rather than right. who I was at that time and place. Tell us about your journey to the U.S. At what point did you move from Indonesia to to here? I graduated high school. I, when I was ten years old, I decided that I wanted to become a biologist, mm -hmm. mostly from watching Jane Goodall movies, and um, I wanted to be like her. And so I okay, yes, said, I'm going to be a biologist, and I followed that track all the way through. Got into college at UC Davis um, in the zoology department, and came here for that. Um, and then along the way, that's when I, you know, the Gulf War happened and I got yeah. into activism and then I found myself doing graphic design. And <laughs> um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so on and so forth. And okay, you mentioned the Gulf War. And I mean, I was mm -hmm. a kid <laughs> during that time. I, yeah. You said that that kind of got you into activism. So what was your or what prompted that for you? When I moved to the United States, my plan was not to stay. I was just coming here to, mm -hmm. um, you know, get my degree and then go back and and then be Jane Goodall in Indonesia. <laughs> you know, because my mother had been 
involved in the civil rights movement in the U.S. Um, so, you know, I had these stories growing up of how she had gotten arrested mm. for, at the Sheridan Hotel sit-in and that she had gotten arrested protesting the Vietnam War. So, you know, my mother was a, you know, had been arrested <laughs> and my father yeah. was a dissident poet, poet playwright and had gone into hiding um, for some of his work um, back when I was wow. seven. And so I always felt like they never put it on me, but the idea was if you you know, you should be engaged in the world. You should, you know, if yeah. you see injustice, get involved. So when I moved here, it was in college and I got, you know, I would, I didn't know a lot about what was going on here. I, f I felt like I had a lot to learn, more to learn than to say. Um, so mm -hmm. I would go to demonstrations and protest and learn about things. Um, but then the Operation Desert Shield started mm. and it just happened to be right when I was, I had saved up a bunch of money to go back to Indonesia to visit my friends. Actually, my parents weren't even there at the time, but um, it was, you know, my first trip back since I had moved to the U.S. And it was such a different perception, like it was sort of a reminder of, of how wrong the war was everybody in the world mm. thought it was a terrible idea <laughs> and was against the u.s um, invading iraq yeah. and so i felt like it was my responsibility um going back when i returned back to the united states that i should do something about it and so you know the first thing i did is i went to a vigil at the capitol mm. um, i didn't know anybody i just went wow. um and ended up spending the night on the steps of this is the capital of sacramento the capital of okay. california and sacramento and then i started going to organ you know student activist meetings trying to get in trying to learn how to get involved in activism and we ended up running a 24-hour vigil for about two months so that was that was sort of my <laughs> wait a 24-hour vigil for two months on campus yeah what? you know we were people we took turns turns yeah staffing it but wow that's where i i met my current life partner and <laughs> many of no. my friends that i still work and live with today yeah and so with that in mind is there one person or a couple of people that you would say really were essential for you learning because you said you know you got to america and you had to take the time to kind of learn, you know, dynamics here, but also about the activism and what activism could do in ways of being an activist. Are there any people that you would say were really influential in that in that process? You know, I've learned different things from so many different people. It's yeah. I, I, I hate to be like, oh, this is, you know, right. And of course, you know, my wife is one of the people that I met <laughs> and, you know, and I learned a lot. Yeah, um, yeah a lot that i wasn't able to learn from books like the the main sort of model for activism that i think was easier to access you know i my, my parents let me skip school to watch gandhi when it came out wow. and so i <laughs> for me that it was you know gandhi is like a, a mm. kind of person who is influential in my life and i could yeah. see okay that's what your model is somebody you know sort of but i actually have shifted a lot from you know there's nothing wrong with that kind of leadership but the idea that activism requires being that kind of a leader right. that, um, and there's also problems with mm -hmm. his story as well but the um the idea that um that it's only a sort of charismatic martyr type right. leadership is the only way to be is something that um i've 
learned more from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, more humble people <laughs> and people who are who you know work hard and contribute in in many different ways but yeah i, I think one of the important lessons around activism is that, that it's you know people so many of the books we have are rightfully about the Nelson Mandela's and the Gandhi's and the Rosa Parks's and you know the Sefashavis's, but that's only one type of activism. And, and the worry I have there is that that sends the message that if you can't, if you don't think you're as, as charismatic, as good, as brave mm-hmm. as them, then you have nothing to contribute, um, or that that's what you have to strive for. In order, you know, to me, that's a that's a high bar, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and um, and it makes activism seem like it's all about only that part of it. And not to mention when we then later find out that some of these, you know, powers problematic for a lot of people and some of these people are not the perfect people that we had idolized them to be then it's like somehow it deflates the whole cause and you know and that i think is right. would be a mistake as well yeah well i'm so glad that you're bringing that up because i think the figurehead idea of leadership like there's got to be a figurehead there's got to be a representative historically especially within the civil rights movement was so prevalent and i find that now with black lives matter and with different movements we seem to be turning away from that, which I think is wonderful because it, it it ensures that at the forefront is the movement is, you know, what do we what what do we want to happen? How are we activating people? What is the community saying? What does the community need as opposed to, OK, you know, this person said and this person is, you know, and especially with our social media heavy era right now. It's like, you know, if, if we get a figurehead, then people are going to be talking about how he or she is dressed, how he or she, you know, right. w- w- you know what word choice was wrong, with, you know, all types of things. And it's like that uh, amount of critique and criticism, the, the burden of that for one person is ridiculous. And the expectation that one person should be holding all that is preposterous and not healthy for the movement. Yeah. So I think it's really great. I, I appreciate that you're just sharing this kind of figurehead leadership is something that doesn't is not essential to activism. Right. The quintessential activist isn't someone that can go up and make a speech that does not make an activist alone. And people who motivate and mobilize are very important to our movement. And I think that that's, you know, like, I don't want to take it away from them, but I think you're right. Like when you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, for me, it was um, in 1998, the Indonesian Reformasi movement that overthrew the 32-year dictatorship that I grew up under. Mm. You know, it seemed impossible that that would ever change. And Mm. attempts had been made. There had been previous movements in the 70s, in the 80s that, you know, people had tried to push up against the dictatorship. And the problem was it was too easy to lob off the heads of the leadership, right? So the model was always yeah. it had, you know, it's, again, it's not a criticism of that. That was the way that things were done. But um, it also, it, what it took was this concept of a leaderless movement that um, mm. that was able to actually succeed. And I happened to, I went back with the film crew in 1998 in June, right after the overthrow of Soto, and tried, you know, we interviewed a bunch of student leaders um, or student organizations. We wanted to meet with leaders for this movie, right? And a lot of them mm-hmm. were very adamant about the idea that there is no one student leader there is not you know certainly there's people whose names popped up more people who are very articulate who were mobilizers who are good strategists um, but they were very careful not to put anybody up there because the they knew that historically what would happen is you know you put up a leader you 
then all the government had to do is to, right. to put that one person in jail or mess up their life somehow or you know like COINTELPRO mm-hmm. you know like you you find the right. you you can destroy that one leader and that destroy, you know that is can really take down the movement in a way that uh, this concept of a leaderless um, more flat movement um, I think is actually more resilient yeah yeah totally and and because it's relevant I, I saw the movie recently uh Judas and the Black Messiah is a movie that yeah, that's, that was great. Yeah, that's out right now. It's available on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. And Daniel just won a Golden Globe for his performance as Fred Hampton. Yeah. Definitely people should check that out. It's really, really great film. And I knew the story about COINTELPRO and this spy that was infiltrating the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a story that not many people know. And once again, it showcases the ways in which ultimately government has infiltrated movements to kind of silence the people and especially certain leaders. Yeah, and Fred Hampton was was brilliant, obviously. And again, I, I whenever I talk about this, I always want to be careful. It's not to take down the people that we do see as as, as having been right. leaders and who have been influential and who have done, you know, were, you know, standout people in in many different ways but i think there's other things we can look at also other ways of standing out and other ways that we should value um if we want to actually have our movements be resilient okay now i want to chat with you about design because graphic design design has been a big part of what you've done throughout your life and for movements so design especially in our digital age is highly influential when did you recognize the power of design when i was in college doing student activism i found myself making all the flyers doing all the <laughs> making posters <laughs> um it was just yeah. that was what came easy to me because i was not a public speaker and you know i was willing to be involved in organizing and strategy and all this kind of thing but because i also grew up drawing and you know my, i always had sort of visual arts was something that i'd always played in my mm-hmm. parents were you know my father was a performance artist you know my mother was a linguist and so i wanted to be a scientist but um and my, my brother is a musician and so my you know <laughs> we all kind of had to find our own sphere and my sphere was always visual <laughs> yeah yeah graphics and so you know i got a copy of PageMaker and started learning how to do layout on a computer. I guess the the key thing was that that was um, when computers were becoming more accessible and I got a a Mac Classic and started for school. Um, Most of my friends didn't have one, so we were all hanging out in my room taking turns writing our papers. And when we weren't doing that, I, (laughs) um, I was learning computer graphics and I found myself making the posters, flyers, newsletters, um, doing that more and more. And by the time I graduated college, moved to the Bay Area, yeah. I did graduate in zoology, but I I had kind of left that world behind of, uh, mm. of the natural sciences and had gotten deeper into activism. And I felt like the best contribution I had to make to the movement was through graphic design work that I was doing. So with that, like, was there anything that you discovered being very indicative of your design or something that was especially powerful for the posters and flyers that you were creating? Yeah. Um, so I was originally just doing a lot of freelancing and working for a variety of different groups. But I think 
um, probably for me, the turning point was when I, I was working for Inkworks Press, which is a worker-owned union print shop that had been running for some 30 years. They had started out in the early 70s as a worker-owned print shop that served the movement. Um, and I joined that collective as a desktop publisher, and I was doing graphic design. I did this poster about the execution of Ken Sarawiwa in Nigeria, who was... Uh, mm. He was an activist in in Nigeria who was fighting against Shell Oil um, and had been blamed for something that he didn't do. And um, he and a number of of other activists um, were executed. And so I did this this poster about his execution. And uh, this was sort of the where I kind of developed a lot of my sort of philosophies around how I approach graphic design for social change stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I contacted a bunch of the um, organizations that were working on the issue, um, the Nigerian organizations here, the environmental groups that were working to support them, you know, to try to figure out what would be a useful thing to do here besides just sort of like, yeah. ah, this, you know, they just executed this guy, I can't believe it. But um, the question is sort of like, what would be useful as a um, in terms of my contribution as a graphic designer. Um, and so that we de- ended up developing this postcard and poster that they used as part of their outreach um, and organizing. Mm-hmm. And I think that the key thing there was developing this philosophy that I have now that, you know, I, I'm all for not judging a book by its cover, but we are a visual species and we do make a lot of our decisions based on pattern recognition and our ability to understand um, not just with words, but also with with visuals yeah. and communicating emotions and concepts and ideas does matter how it's packaged. And so yeah. what the theory of change I have around the graphic design stuff is that the, the other side, you know, they spend billions of dollars on in the advertising and yes. to, to, to sell their ideas. They've spent a lot of that on visuals and that's not for no result. You know, part of why we, even though uh, we will often, you know, if you do a poll, people will generally want the things that progressives are supporting, but for some reason we can't ever have them by the time it gets to <laughs> to the vote we lose those votes because the, you know they know how to play that game the the visual communications game really well mm. the good news is they're pushing a boulder uphill they're trying to sell us stuff that we don't need so they have to spend billions of dollars to try to convince us that what we actually need is not what we want. Meanwhile, on our side, all we have to do is unlodge that boulder. So for, I think, a lot less mm-hmm. money and for a lot more, because it's essentially the idea that we kind of have truth on our side. Yeah. <laughs> that I think using visual communications as a tool in that battle for hearts and minds, I think is something that is important. Absolutely. Most of my career is more as doing graphic design for social change, and the children's book thing is my my the new hat that I wear these days. <laughs> but that's what most people know me for. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about a one eighty, a moment where you made a big change. Things were going one direction, and then you uh, turned things around, or things turned around for you. You know, and I knew that this podcast is called One Eighty, so I was trying to think of. And it's hard for me because I, in terms of a single moment, you know, for me, it's been, it was a series of moments. Yeah, There's a lot of ways that my life and my trajectory has changed from when I was purely focused on doing graphic design for social change 
as me and my partner and our community sort of young activists, you know, who were unattached and didn't have a lot of, of obligations besides mm-hmm. being able to throw ourselves at the movement. Yeah. You know, I think one of the, the first things that happened was, was one of, when one of our first people in our community had a child, Aiko was born <laughs> um, in 2000 and when that, you know, the first child in our community. Let me push. Cause I, I know when you say community, that there's a very specific thing that you're talking about. So can you describe the community? Yeah. I live in a co-housing community. This was actually what the time I'm talking to, about is before we were sort of officially in co-housing. Co-housing mm-hmm. is where everybody has their own unit or most people have their own units, but then we have share common space. So the idea is the houses, themselves people don't have to have your own single family nuclear family households as much as mm-hmm. as we can you know we share as much space as possible but we still do have our own our own spaces to retreat to so slightly somewhere between the idea of your single family household and living in a co-op house kind of thing and so mm-hmm. i live in this community which now has we've had eight kids born into it <laughs> um over wow. since it's a you know a bunch of them are are off to college now and mm-hmm. are no longer kids um and so <laughs> the the kid i was talking about Iko, was was first born in 1999 and that was kind of a turning point for us as a community community to be integrating yeah. you know babies and children into our <laughs> right. our lives in a way that we hadn't um before but you know fast forward what would that have been something like 11 years later we were going to have a kid um mm-hmm. so our kid is the <laughs> the youngest of eight grown, born into our community hmm. you know I, I was reading children's books to all these kids throughout all these years but Mm. I knew that with my own kid I was going to be reading these children's books not just over and over and over again but over and over and over and over and over and over again and I wanted to have (laughs) the book that I wanted to read to my kid over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and I wanted it to be in our story was our neighbor's they have a kid that's one year older and they give us some of his books and they're architects. Mm. They had these architects counting and architects shapes kind of books, you know, and I'm like, you know, if there can be children's books, you know, for architects, how come there's not a children's book for activists, (laughs) for social justice movement people about the values and and things that we cared about. And so that's, I I remember that was sort of the moment where I was like, you know, if they can have a, a children's book for what they do, we should have one for what we do. And I went to find it and I couldn't find it. So I wrote my own. Message. You wrote your own and that, I mean, did you, you said it very easily and matter of factly, and you are a problem solver. So maybe it was just that, that quote unquote easy, but what was the process like? Did you find that the process was challenging or was, you know, you already had graphic design experience. So was it relatively easy or yeah, what was that process like of writing your first children's book? Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun actually. I I started with we were at a retreat with my collective Design Action Collective at the time. It sort of did a brainstorm around you know you know if, if you were to do you know a ABC book on activism, what would A be for? What would B be for? What would C be for? And yeah. so we like ended up with a long list of those things, and I had to whittle it down. But 
for me, you know, because I do graphic design, I do illustration, I come and I'm familiar with publishing, I had printing background, I had started yeah. design action, so I know about sort of the business end of things, like all that. I was very lucky that I had all those pieces to be able to come together. For me, the writing part was the part that I was um, the most concerned about. Mm. I knew I was a good writer, but I had not written books for children. And I knew that this was going to be pushing boundaries around what people believe should be shared with children. Right. So my process there and what has continued to be my process with children's books is that I did my first draft and then I share it first with my kid and then with kids in our community. And then I revise it and then I, I start making these sort of mock-up booklets with sort of hand-drawn versions of it. And then I share that with mm. a broader group of kids and families. And then as I start illustrating it, as ones become more solid, it's like, okay, this is definitely going to be that. And I can do the illustration. I would do printouts of it and I would share it out with, you know, I'd find other families with kids who are in the age range mm -hmm. that these books are targeted towards. You know, and families who, who I knew, you know, who would be interested in these kind of books for their kids. And I'd give them this survey. I'd say, okay, can you ask your kid to answer these questions? Like, like which is your favorite uh, uh -huh. page? What do you think about A? What do you think about B? What's the, you know, what do you understand? Wow. And, you know, I said, actually ask your kid. Like, I don't want your opinion. <laughs> I do want your opinion. And actually, it doesn't matter because the parents will give me their opinion anyway. Their opinion anyway, right. <laughs> but I really right. wanted to know right. how kids kid. respond to this. And what's interesting is I just assumed that children's books were, you know, field tested on children. As it turns out, they're not. For the most part, the decision making around what goes into a children's book, what is considered a good children's book, this is all done by adults and it's a particular demographic. Right. That's sad. There's a reason why uh, children's books tend to skew towards a very particular kind of demographic. And this is one of the deep Mm -hmm. problems around diversity and children's book stuff is because it's very hard to get anything published that doesn't go through all these filters mm. in this in our world they call it the gatekeepers you know yes. the, from the the agents to the editors to the publishers to, uh, the distributors what they think a good children's book is and who wins all the awards and all this kind of stuff and so for me what was most mm -hmm. important and what I try to keep as my friend Laura Atkins calls my true north is how kids respond to it. So I try to get a lot of data, yeah. feedback and input from actual kids, you know, and then that's great because people can say what they want. You know, it's like, oh, this is inappropriate for kids or words are too big, you know, no kid, you know, did you ever try, you know, it's like, well, try reading it with the kid. I mean, <laughs> can't promise that every kid's going to love every one of my books, but I know plenty of kids actually really love my book. So that's what matters. Yeah. And I love that that follows along with do not design in a vacuum. Exactly. You tested out your material, you checked in with kids, you checked in with adults before you actually published, which is is really uh, admirable because, you know, community, as I'm continuing to get to know you, community is essential to who you are. And both sharing with the community and working with and for the community, even in your publishing process, it's like, this is about the community. Yes, I might think it looks cool. I might think it sounds good, 
if I'm checking in with the seven-year-old who's a part of this community and they're not feeling it, then I got to change something. Yeah. Uh, I love that. Yeah. 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 And on both sides of it, right? Like it has to be first and foremost, if you're writing a children's book, it has to be engaging and loved by children. If it, if you're not, then you're just doing your own thing. But then we're also talking about things that is about, you know, that are about people's lives and I'm not everybody. I don't represent all aspects of the movement. Some of my books are semi-autobiographical, so I can write about mm. my experience growing up in Indonesia under the dictatorship and my father's play, like in My Night in the Planetarium or in M is for uh -huh. Movement, which is about Indonesia also. But like in The Wedding Portrait, that one I talk about civil rights movement. I do talk about the um, you know the protests against nuclear arms in on Shoshone land. Mm. You know, so I wouldn't publish a book like that without checking in with the activists who are sort of boots on the ground who are who yeah. have been and at the forefront of those movements to make sure that uh, you know what I'm saying you know is not just sort of my perception of it, but it's actually what's useful and true to them. Nice. Um, so I'm going to ask a question that's super relevant to a lot of what's happening around the country in different uh, neighborhoods. So you, you've lived in the Bay Area for, for how many years? Mm, since 1994. Okay, so a long time. A long time. I'm not doing the math. Yeah. I was in San Francisco for a little while, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so I'm sure in that time you've watched that certain neighborhoods have become more and more gentrified. Mm -hmm. Are there actions prompted by activists or communities that you've experienced being successful at halting the neighborhood overhaul that's typically indicative of gentrification? It's hard to call say success, you know, because it's an ongoing yeah. movement. I think that through the foreclosure crisis, there were a number of housing takeover actions that were led by organizations and individuals who came out of that experience that I think have been very successful as part of tactics around getting the, the conversation on the map. I think the most important thing is just like always, it's organizing, organizing, organizing. You know, the, the organizations yeah. like Just Cause, Causa Justa in Oakland, and you know, my partner actually works in Contra Costa County, which is through the tunnel, more in the burbs, mm -hmm. where there's been a lot of issues around housing in particular where you know where where mm. city councils are still very old school and things like rent control yeah. and <laughs> rent registries and all this kind of thing are actually very hard to to get to enacted and people are getting evicted partially through due to gentrification now do you know because of during covid people are you know they've been fighting a lot for the eviction moratorium so you know housing obviously being kind of the key outcome around gentrification people's access to their communities and a place to live this is not a like a flashy answer <laughs> but it is it is that the organizations on the ground are what's making it happen yeah. it's these things just like rosa parks didn't just sit down and because she was tired you know she's an organizer i always look less to the individual actions that are done by uh, a single person who made the headlines as much as as what was the behind the scenes organizing over time that really made a difference and so in the bay area you know it's an ongoing crisis um but we also have a significant amount of power um as uh people who are advocates for fair housing laws because of the long-term organizing that's happened I mean, I, I think about, you know, the, the ways in which for me specifically, I try to support local business, support black owned businesses, support 
local as much as I can. And simultaneously, I remember a few years ago here in Harlem, I attended a city council meeting about they were going to bulldoze this, you know, this building that had been there for years and black business owners who had been there for years to build a, a whole foods and all this stuff. And you could hear the passion behind folks' voices where they were like, this is not fair. We've, we've stood our ground. We've served our community. And ultimately, you know, I think there might've been a two month delay before the whole foods <laughs> appeared. And I don't know the money that they gave to those people. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know how those people were compensated, but ultimately there's a Whole Foods and those businesses are gone right now or, or are elsewhere. And it's just frustrating because it, it can feel like you're fighting, a, you're, yeah, you're fighting a war that, you, that feels like, oh, how can we win? How can we win? Right. But like you said, the long-term kind of organizing is really essential and shoring up your communities in ways of finding those people that have been on the ground, have been there for a long time and supporting them in the various ways, whether that's mutual aid, whether that's supporting their business, whether that's checking in regular conversations. Gentrification is such an interesting challenge that I think a lot of communities are facing. Yeah. And, you know, we can't win every battle, but the fight itself matters. Mm -hmm. It does make a difference in terms of what the next challenge that comes and how they approach that. Yeah. Like you said, I think the building broader community resilience through mm -hmm. all these different pieces of it, you know, people who are doing urban farming, people who are, yes. are you know, doing local businesses, people who are, you know, Black-owned businesses, people who are, you know, different ways that we we create the infrastructures for, for supporting the resilience. Mm -hmm. You know, again, that's sort of a word that's been overused, but it's true that, you know, mm -hmm. that's part of the whole sort of worker co-op model, the whole, whole community community ownership model of things, the idea of trying to make sure that we have broad investment in an engagement with the institutions in, in our communities rather than having yeah. it be a competitive model of one little small business against another small business, which can easily be exploited and of course you know they come down with a lot of money and right. you know so that makes us easy targets so i do think that all these little things that may seem like not as sexy as mm -hmm. some of the you know direct action stuff which i love as well but you know it's all the stuff in between the direct actions that matters in some ways more yeah cool well we're gonna move on to the quote and i just want to get your thoughts on this quote the question is not if we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. The nation and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. And that's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. What that makes me think of is mm -hmm. this question going back to when I was looking at what happened in Indonesia in 1998. There's always this kind of like question of when is the right time for something, yeah. right? It's like, oh, you know, I don't disagree with you, but, you know, we're not ready for that yet. Mm. But what I discovered looking at the student movement in Indonesia in 1998, I, had, I hadn't moved here. I was seeing some of these activists who were on trial from some actions that they'd been involved in from this July 27, 1997 action. Hmm. I was watching them like, you guys are crazy. You know, you're going to be get killed. Like, how can you say that? Mm. You know, like that just seemed so 
extreme. Yeah, so extreme. You know, that's just not going to play in Indonesia kind of thing. And then when we went and talked to a lot of the student activists and community activists in Indonesia in 1998, after the overthrow of Soeto, a lot of them would be, they, they kind of disowned some of these folks. Mm. They would be like, oh, no, we're not involved in that organization. We're, you know, we're our own thing. It's not in the, it's not true, right? Like what really happened was these people who were ahead of their time, quote unquote, they created the openings. Right. The student movement that came after them wouldn't have been able to do what they did if there hadn't been these people who were ahead of them. Yeah. And so this is I wasn't very articulate about it, but the the idea is is that pushing these openings is actually like you fighting for what you actually believe for these extremists people who are seen seen as quote unquote extreme right. you know are actually creating the space for what later becomes co-opted as reasonable right and so they actually yes. later on everybody was using the same slogans and saying the same things hmm. and they were disowning the people who had said it first and you know that's all problematic obviously but that's what's going to happen like we're uh -huh. you know we're <laughs> yes. we we should know that up front and know that at in some ways that's a measure of success mm. when they start trying to co-opt <laughs> these ideas then sure you know then we're actually getting what we had said before yeah the credit and all this stuff is important but the actual change that happens happens when everybody suddenly claims that these ideas are theirs or believes these ideas to be theirs right mm -hmm. and so i think that that's you know looking at what happened in in indonesia then and and i think now if you look at a lot of movements that are happening right now yeah. you know if if you had told us you know people said oh trans rights that's getting ahead of your time you know right. talking about gay marriage that's getting ahead of your time people are not ready for it you know but it took people pushing for those things that seemed extreme <laughs> right ahead of their time at the time to be now be like oh yeah you know that's of course of course right that's reasonable that's expected yeah right i mean I, and i think about like even in this current moment of people putting out statements whether it's television stations or theater companies but putting out statements especially over the summer about black lives matter sure yeah more recently as uh, there's been an uptick in violence against the asian community making statements about you know we stand in solidarity with our asian community violence against asian community is not unacceptable and it's so interesting to see these things that at a certain point we're extreme <laughs> becoming like right oh now yes we've got to talk about this or right uh, we who are you to think that you know you're not having a conversation you're not making a statement about this when the extremists become the mainstreamists <laughs> yes yes <laughs> you know that's message cool well thank you so much Inosanto, for for the conversation and for chilling and chatting with us i want to make sure that people follow you on instagram so you can follow Inosanto on Instagram at Inosanto. I'm going to spell that I-N-N-O-S-A-N-T-O-N-A-G-A-R-A. -A -A. Okay, I just spelled, spelled your whole name. <laughs> Inosanto. Inosanto Nagara at Inosanto Nagara, all one word. And be sure to purchase his most recent book, Oh, The Things Were For, which I, we didn't talk about it. So really briefly, tell us about Oh, The Things Were For, which is your most recent book. Oh, The Things Were For is 
my most recent book. You know, I, I wrote A is for Activist, which is about the issues, counting on community, about how we live. My Night in the Planetarium is about art and resistance and colonialism. The Wedding Portrait is about direct action, civil disobedience, you know, tactics, so to speak. Emma's Movement was sort of about how all that comes together, how you can overthrow the government for children. <laughs> Behind all that, a lot of my motivation around all this stuff has actually been around institution building, around alter- you know, the world that we would like to see. Mm. It's really important that we stand up against injustice and the things that we're against. But we also need to, after... 30 some years of doing this, you need to have the vision. And the point is, we actually don't lack a vision. We have, you know, these visions have always been there, but we tend to talk less about them. And so the other things were for was sort of an attempt to move into that space so that you can have Mm -hmm. a balance of both. I have six books that talk about all the problems. And I can now also talk a little bit about, how you know, what is it that you're for? Yes. I love that because I'm all about centering joy and like finding ways to look at both imagination and discovery and possibility as ways of life, as opposed to, like you said, like we can be very aware or it is often placed in front of our eyes what we need to fight against. But if we don't have the means to consider what we're for or to to imagine what we're for or to create what we're for, then we're, we're stuck, you know, we're stuck in the fight. And uh, we need to be more about more than the fight. No, and both are important, but it's, you know, yes. it, it, you know, it can be very depressing to focus so all uh-huh. exclusively on the problems. <laughs> yes. And depressed, when you're depressed, it doesn't motivate you to action. You know, mm. Go purchase Inosanto's book, All oh, the Things We're For. And if you don't already have A is for Activists, go check out and get A is for Activists. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Eric. It was, you know, I know I've talked a lot, but it's a podcast, so I hope exactly. that's okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you yes, asked me, so. Right, right. That was great. <laughs> it's a really great time. Thank you all for joining us. The 180 is produced by David Treatman with audio production and editing by Mike Luno. Original music composed by Jarrett Landon and sung by yours truly. And digital portraits by Byron McRae. If you like what you heard, tell your friends. We need your help to spread the love and inspiration. Follow us on all social media at The180Pod and visit our website at www.the180pod.com. If you want to help support these stories, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. You can get access to chat more with me. You can also get exclusive content, merchandise, and you can hear episodes early. Visit our Patreon at www.patreon.com, the180pod. Until next time, I'm your host, Eric Lockley. Take care and be blessed. Know that you'll have a blessing if you just keep on pressing. Don't stop, keep going, you can turn it around. The 180, yes, it's a big change. The 180, your life won't be the same. The 180, you can do it. Say yes to your beautiful future. 180.